Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Real Tall Tales. We are your hosts. I'm Cassie Young. And I'm Munir McJohnny. And I am so excited about this, Munir, because we have been talking about doing this podcast, it feels like, forever, but also only like two weeks. Yeah, and I feel like part of the reason that I love this so much is because you and I have such similar values, yet we approach things from such various and different perspectives. So I'm really, really curious as to see the path that this is going to take. You use logic and science and reason, and I use blind passion and emotion. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much sums it up. So Tall Tales. Tales is a podcast we talked about after realizing that we have so many friends who you would consider ordinary people, which is not an insult or a dig at all. I'm an ordinary person. Munir's an ordinary person. We're not Kate Middleton. We're not the president. Just everyday people, but they have ridiculous stories. And it made us realize that everyone in their life has some kind of ridiculous story that you tell and no one believes you. So we wanted to start documenting those stories and getting into the lives of these quote unquote ordinary people who are living these basically tall tales. And then Munir, you found something that summed it up perfectly. Yeah, so I can't stop talking about astrophysics. And a friend of mine just brought me this present that's Neil deGrasse Tyson's book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. And the book's dedication is for all those who are too busy to read fat books, yet nonetheless seek a conduit to the cosmos. And I thought this was just the perfect summary of what we're trying to do here. Yeah, because I work on a morning radio show, for those of you who don't know. I didn't listen to podcasts often because I was so done listening to people talk. I was done talking myself. But what I loved is that I could do it while I did other things. And yet I felt like I was intaking all this knowledge and information because books on tape don't really do it for me. Right. While I was able to do other things. So I love that you don't have time to read a fat book, but you're in a hurry sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to consume the cosmos, right? Like. You know, a couple of decades ago, we were in a war of knowledge, and it was whoever had the most knowledge was the most successful and the most powerful. Now, thanks to Google, social media, knowledge is available to everybody. So how do we dilute this into bits that's available and interesting and can feed the senses of curious people? And I'm so excited because we're going to start with your story. But before we get into it, let's give a quick content warning for those affected by gun violence or violent crime. You may find the following content triggering. But Munir, your story, it is harrowing at the same time, fascinating. And I can't believe you are a well-adjusted adult after going through this as a child. (laughs) Took a lot of therapy. Did it really? A whole year of therapy after this. Oh my God, I could have totally seen it. So how old were you? Seven years old. And at seven years old, you got locked in a freezer because of a hostage situation. Yeah. So what happened? So this usually makes a great two truths and one lie situation, so I guess I'll have to come up with another story after this one. It was Thanksgiving Day about 25 years ago, and a uncle of mine who's from Australia was living with us for about five years at this time. And where were you living? In Riverdale, Georgia. And to give you an idea of Riverdale, Georgia, it's the first school to lose its accreditation after 35 years in the history of the United States. Yeah, <laughs> Did so it not, lose it when you were there? Uh, Do you have a diploma? <laughs> we moved. So my parents realized that we moved across the world for me to get a good education and moved to literally the worst county to do that in. And for those who don't know, where did you move from? From Pakistan. Okay. So my dad's from India. Mom's from Pakistan. I was born in Pakistan myself. Lived there for about two years. Moved here for a better future for me. And we ended up in the worst education system that we could have. <laughs> in the worst county. <laughs> yeah, the worst <laughs> love, county. Of yeah. course. So it was... A cold Thanksgiving day, about 25 years ago, I was seven years old, and my uncle from Australia was heading back to Australia after having lived with us for five years. His brother, my other uncle, had just gotten married this past weekend. And for some reason, we wanted to celebrate Thanksgiving like the Jews celebrate Christmas, and they were just die hard on going to a Chinese restaurant. 
So we went to one called Silver Dragon, and they're clothed, so I'm happy to say their name on the podcast now. And we had a meal, and it was my mom, my dad, my uncle, his newly married wife, my other uncle who's heading back to Australia, and one other couple in the restaurant, and that was it. Right after we're done eating, three guys walk in, all masked, one with a gun, one with the bat, and one with the hockey stick. The one with the gun shoots the bubble gum machine. You know the one you put a quarter in and get the candy out of? Yeah. And me as a seven-year-old, and I'm like, oh, free candy, not realizing what the hell's going on at all. Wait, wait, so as a seven-year-old, because I love that gum. It loses its flavor in like 10 seconds, but there's something so amazing about chewing it. You didn't realize that the candy spilled out because of a gunshot. You just thought it was sort of like, oh, magic. I didn't quite conceptualize what was going on, but as like a seven-year-old, you just look at, oh, candy's available, right? Mm -hmm. And so like I just ran towards that. My uncle grabs me, throws me towards my mom, and tells all of us to get on the floor. All of us are a little confused as to what the hell's going on. All of us are on the floor at this point, and they come one by one and take everything that we have on us. So my uncle, who's really, really big, actually gets hogtied because he's such a oh big my guy. God. Yeah, so they, I will never forget this. They duct tape his hands behind his back and tie his legs up. The other couple, unfortunately, got it even worse where they took their car keys and went oh, outside no. and stole their car, yeah. So they come to us one by one, and I will never forget, my mom has these bangles that she wears, these golden things. Are they, I know in Indian culture, that's representative of, like, wedding rings, right? That, yeah, that's exactly okay. it, yeah. So they're super sentimental as super well. Super sentimental, and she's had them for about 11 years on her hand and has never taken them off, largely because she just grew out of them and couldn't take them off. But it's still cool. It's like Kylie Jenner got the bracelet stuck on her. Not quite the same. Okay, okay, I get it, but similar. Exactly. And oh so my they... God, your mom's the OG Kylie Jenner. <laughs> <laughs> That's the real reason we're doing this podcast, yeah. <laughs> just to reveal that. So she pulls them off of her hands and is literally bleeding. Oh my God. Then they come to me, a seven-year-old, and I had just won a Power Rangers holographic wallet from the March of Dimes auction in our school that had all of $2 in it, but they took it. They, and they seriously took They seriously took it. $2. They must have been desperate for something. Like, did they leave the wallet at least? No, that was the worst part. They took the wallet. Oh. I would have been okay if they took the cash and left me the wallet because I. Lo it was a Velcro wallet with the Red Ranger on it and it was holographic. It was the coolest thing I got out at the time. They were probably smart, though, because they didn't want to leave fingerprints. Right. And they were wearing gloves and stuff like that. But oh. it's interesting that you say fingerprints. I'll tell you a, a fun fact that the cops told us after on that. So they come to all of us. Then my dad, who's also a big guy, gets stood up. And this was the worst part of it. I remember looking from under the table at my dad with a gun pointed at his head. And they tell him to give him everything that he's got in his wallet. And so he first reaches for his shirt pocket and realizes that he has cash in there. So then he goes, let me not do that, reaches in his pants and hands over his wallet that just has a bunch of credit cards in it. The guy has a gun pointed at his face. And he goes, what's in your shirt pocket? And my dad goes, nothing. And the guy starts getting really angry at him. And my dad, again, 25 years ago, I'll never forget this, goes, why are you worried? You're the one with a gun. You're in control. Just tell me what to do. Oh, my God, your dad's a champion. It was ridiculous. And I'm yelling at my dad, Dad, just give him what he wants. Dad, just give it to him. Because I think my dad's going to get shot over 100 bucks in his pocket. Right. But and your dad's super smart. If he doesn't have to give up the cash... Why wouldn't he just give the credit cards, which can be canceled like that? Right. And that's exactly what he did. And they just left him alone. Oh, that's so smart. What a dynamic pointing out that the guy who has the gun has the power. And they just told him to get back on the ground. And so they worked their way around the room. And then we all get told to stand up and walked into a walk-in cooler. 
Now, for those who've never been into a walk-in cooler, usually the way that the walk-in cooler works is it's super dark, and the push on the inside is kind of like a pin that you push to open the door on the inside. Like a safety pin or? No, it's like a, like, think like a crochet needle size, but it's got a padding on the other side and you just push it in and when you push it in it unlocks the door and the lights there are no lights in there are they automatic there's a small red light and that's it because usually when you go in there you keep the door open because it's freezing okay so we're all stuck in there and as a shitty seven-year-old i didn't wear any winter clothes i refused to do it and so i was in a shirt and a shorts which is ridiculous because it's thanksgiving it's thanksgiving yeah although it is in georgia it is in georgia but it was cold this time and so my dad gives me his sweater and we all just kind of cuddle around each other and so the family who we think owned the restaurant was in there with us as well the chef was in there and at some point the chef says this is it this is how we're gonna die the chef said that out loud with a seven-year-old by with a seven-year-old he He must have really thought he was gonna die yeah we were confident that this was it that we were all gonna freeze to death so why could you not exit the freezer so they had broken the inside of the freezer door the heistman the heistman yeah so in hindsight we think that the restaurant owners were actually in on the whole coup because the lady who was working the front desk still had her gold jewelry on oh and they didn't take anything from them and most places like this have a red button for a call alert that if you press twice the police will come they didn't press that for some reason so we think they were in on it and then it kind of went bad because they weren't expecting like the second part of it to happen they're having to get ushered into the freezer into the freezer yeah it seems strange to me like they had to have known i guess they were trying to get away before someone called the cops but they had to have known that when they broke that freezer door it went from just being a robbery at gunpoint to either murder or attempted murder which i'm not saying robbery at gunpoint is acceptable in any way shape or form but that is very very different from intent to kill oh absolutely and, and intend to kill a child and additionally on top of all of that. Yeah. And had it not been Thanksgiving Day, the restaurant would have been open on Friday. Oh. And so we would have been okay. But because it was, they weren't going to open back up until Monday. So you would have been in that freezer from Thursday through yeah, yeah Monday. It would have yeah. been too late. And so the chef's scientific calculations at that point basically said that we had 24 to 48 hours to live and that we were all going to slowly freeze to death. Oh, my God. Not even if you did exercises or something? <laughs> I mean, like, could you run in? Pl- I mean, clearly the freezer was full of food, so you could gnaw on something. So you had food. It was raw meat. Yeah, but it's still frozen. So yeah, all the bacteria is dead. It's something. And there's ice, so you got water. Like, there's no no way you could have run in place or like done calisthenics we to did not stay think warm. about that it was a small space mm. so we were all bumping into each other as well it wasn't a huge walk-in freezer got it and at this point you've got almost 12 people in there okay including the restaurant staff who's in there as well so we just kind of sat there and said our final prayers and thought that this was it and after a while i realized when i was looking at the door that because they had broken off this again like a crochet needle that essentially goes in to unlock the lock and freezer that that was the same size as a chopstick and Uh i love eating food with a chopstick so i had stolen a pair of chopsticks and put them in my pocket to take home with me so i could eat food at home with a chopstick oh my god how ironic that your theft saved you from the other people yeah basically and i mean it's chopsticks it's not real right and there were wooden chopsticks and at home, I don't know if your home has this, but my home, if you lock a door from the inside and you're on the outside, you take a toothpick or a hair clip and you push it into the little hole. Uh, like one of those locks, it's like 
the popping locks. Like on exactly. one side, you push the button, and so the opposite side has that tiny hole in the middle of the gold doorknob that you can just pop it. That's in. Yep. exactly it. And so to me, this was just a bigger hole and a bigger toothpick. And so I took the chopstick and started fiddling with it. And the guy who worked there was like, you have a chopstick? And I was like, yeah. He goes, why the hell didn't you not tell us before? We could have gotten out of here. You're like, I didn't know. I didn't know, right? I'm seven. I'm not like 70 Neil deGrasse Tyson. I thought I was going to die. And all of a sudden, we push this chopstick into the door, and the door opens. And all of us are just standing there trying to figure out if this was just a bad dream or a nightmare or if we really are just going to be alive right now. So we're all frozen to some extent. My uncle and my dad grab pots and pans and walk out first, telling us to stay behind like they're going to catch a bullet or something. I have no idea what they were thinking they were going to do with it. But they walk outside. They, you know, go walk around the perimeter, realize the hotel is safe and that the, the thieves have left and they come back and they let us all out. And all of us are crying, hugging each other, just in a state of euphoria that we're not going to die in a fucking freezer at a Chinese restaurant. I can't believe that you, I mean, I can, but the fact that you saved everyone's lives, 12 people's lives with one chopstick to me is the tall tale part of this tale. Here's the funny part. 25 years later, I still have that same chopstick. I think you should have it framed in a damn I... <laughs> shadow box. It is still on my bookshelf at home in Fayetteville. It is still there. 25 years I've held on to that I'm thing. I'm getting you like a <laughs> shadow box to put that in. That is a magical, sacred chopstick. I'm going to hang it up. Yeah, definitely. You can't have it lying out where some drunk person's over at your house and y'all order Chinese and they pick it up to <laughs> eat. You'll be like, do you know how many lives that that'd chopstick saved? That'd be the saved? worst. Oh, my God. That'd be so horrible. So we get out. We call the cops. And the cops go around and gather the shell from the gun. And we're like, oh, they were wearing gloves, so, you know, we're not going to get any fingerprints. And he goes, maybe, but a lot of people don't think about when they load the gun, they're often not wearing gloves. Oh. So there may be a fingerprint. God, whatever cop or detective thought of that first is brilliant. Right? Here's the shitty part. They never found them. The oh. worst thing is, I know exactly who the three guys are. How do you know who they are? So I've always been a very observant person, and the three guys had very bad teeth, and they lived a neighborhood over from me, and they stole my friend's bike and would steal our candy on Halloween. So these three guys at that time were probably... They would steal a candy at Halloween? They would steal all of our candy. They would literally ride up on us on their bikes. How old were they? They were probably in their late teens, like anywhere from 18 to 21. Oh, my God. So it was some teenagers yeah. held all up? Yeah, yeah, straight teenagers. Oh and the three of them lived together. And we don't know their story. They would never talk to us. But, like, if let's say we were playing basketball and they wanted to play and they showed up, you just moved. And so I knew exactly who all three of them were. Did you ever say anything? I told my parents, but we were just like, we're just going to leave it alone. Because we had no idea. We knew they lived in the neighborhood next to us, but it was an apartment complex. So thousands of people lived there. Right. And they had stolen my friend's bikes. They had taken our candy. So we knew of them, but we didn't know exactly who they were. Plus, like, I'm sure that's very circumstantial to trust the report and memory of a seven-year-old based on teeth. Like, even though I believe that you were observant, no police officer is going to be able to make or lawyer is going to be able to make that stick in court. So then all you've done is poke the bear and piss these three dangerous individuals off. Yeah. Who will now have a vendetta against you. Yeah, just would have made the situation worse. Oh, God, that would drive me nuts, though. So the story got even more ridiculous. We were hanging out at the restaurant. 
Still had to pay our bill. They didn't even comp our restaurant bill, which we totally asked for because we're Indians. Um, um, no, that's just a general human being. Like, I yeah, got held up. you would up. think so, right? My stuff got stolen. You still have your jewelry. Like, comp me my. They took our contact information down so we could pay them our bill. How ridiculous is that? So we're there for a while at this point because the police are investigating, asking us questions. And in walks the dishwasher. And we're like, where the hell were you? Turns out he had jumped outside of the back done a flip, had a bullet go through the heel of his shoe. So they shot at him when he was trying to escape. They shot at him, and we literally saw the bullet that went through the back of his heel on his shoe. Luckily, the shoe was bigger than his foot, and it missed his foot, but it had torn his socks. That's how close it got. So he then tells us that he had ran across the street after he flipped off the back and called the police. So we're like, why the hell didn't the police show up earlier? Why wouldn't they? Because I mean, a little part of me is glad he did that, because at least if you didn't have the chopstick, you still had a backup, like, right. save your life plan. But So the police don't come because then a simple robbery situation becomes a hostage situation. And so the police sometimes would rather they get away and save our lives. So it's mm. always people, pets, and property. That's the order that police and firemen go after. And so they figured, that's fine. Let them go through with this. Let them get away. Then we'll come in because the people will be saved. Otherwise, this would have become a hostage situation. God knows what could happen then. It's like little nuances like that I love because you're on the surface. You're like, why would you ever? The police are called to help you. Why would you not show up? But in not showing up, they were actually helping you. I find stuff like that fascinating to me, like the little intricacies that you don't normally think about and the way that police precincts operate. That's really, really cool. Yeah. So I spent the next year and a half having repeated nightmares. Oh, obviously. That night we came home, we drove home, and it was probably two or three o'clock in the morning. And my mom, who's just the coolest person I know, just couldn't stop laughing. She was like, what a ridiculous story. Like, nobody's going to believe that this just happened. And so our best friends as a family used to live right across the street from us. So at three o'clock in the morning, we go and wake them up. And we have them make us tea and we tell them the story. And we're like, we just can't believe that this happened. And like, we just needed to be with some people. The next day, my uncle's flying out to Australia. When we meet him at the airport, he tells Your us. Your uncle is like, I cannot wait to get out of this country. Yeah, he's like, I'm so done. So keep in mind, this was 25 years ago. He had spent about five years with us living in Georgia, in Riverdale, Georgia specifically. And while he had worked, he had saved $5,000 in cash, which he had given to his brother. His brother had brought that money and given it to my uncle at the restaurant. No. But my uncle, who was coming from home, wore traditional Indian clothes. He wore a shalvar kutha because all of his other stuff was packed. And what does that look like? Basically pajamas. Okay. And so the robbers never went to him. What? He is so hard to miss. He's like six foot two. I was going to say, aren't they usually brightly colored or made out of silk, like gorgeous garments? They never went to him. He had his wallet with $5,000 in it that he flew back to Australia with, somehow never got anything taken from him. Do you think maybe they just were dumb and assumed he didn't speak English, so they didn't bother? Do you think they were threatened by the concept of the other, quote-unquote? I think what happened is because he was hogtied, because he's such a big dude, they may have just assumed that the person who was tying him up already took his stuff on him. Oh, so that uncle was the one wearing the garments and he was hogtied. Got it. Yeah, so both my uncles were really big and tall. Both of them got duct taped behind their backs and hogtied. And I think they must have just assumed that because he was hogtied, 
that the person who was doing that just did it and maybe that person did him first and then went to my other uncle and forgot to take his money somehow he walked away with five thousand did your other uncle's money get taken too all of it oh my gosh so he was like the only one besides the restaurant owners and one more thing so my dad being the person who he is was like let me just walk around and see if they left anything now, these people had filled a big garbage bag with all of our stuff. And my dad walks around and under the commercial burners sees something shiny. So he grabs a chopstick and pulls out I had this no idea piece chopsticks of jewelry. were so useful. Oh, they're amazing. And he pulls out a piece of jewelry. This is the only piece of jewelry other than the restaurant owners that was left. I kid you not, it was my aunt's wedding ring. She had just gotten married over the weekend. Right. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, our Indian weddings last like a week. She had just gotten married. This was Thursday. She was decked out in jewelry because she's a new bride. The only piece of jewelry that somehow got left was my aunt's wedding ring. My roommate in college is Indian. And when she got married, it obviously is a huge deal, no matter your culture. But especially, like you said, Indian weddings are like three days. The ceremonies are super long. But I remember her family members gifted her with jewelry to borrow. Yeah. Some of it was gifts. Some of it was just to borrow. But I mean, we're talking like huge chandelier, intricate, ornate, oh, like yeah. solid gold earrings. The stuff in movies when you see gold doubloons and on pirate ships, like it is so realistic and so beautiful. You're like, it almost looks fake. Yeah, like absolutely. Just the bangles. So if she lost everything, she lost everything. That's devastating because a lot of that stuff is passed down from family to family too, like generation to generation. Yeah, the tradition, significance of it, the the giving of the gift, all of that is so kind of rooted in our traditions. But I think the fact that we just survived kind of surpassed all of that. And I, then getting the wedding ring is a total bonus. Yeah, yeah, total bonus. And I think it's funny to your point. I think if we didn't think we were going to die, we would have been more upset about the stuff we lost. But then almost losing our life put everything else in perspective. Yeah, I was going to say, talk about the hella perspective. Yeah. And with my nightmares, I ended up in therapy at school. So every Wednesday, I would have to go to the school therapist for like a whole year. And I'm in fifth grade at this point. When Christmas rolls around, we would always buy our teachers. You know, you've got three or four teachers at, mm-hmm. at this point. And we bought all of my teachers pepper spray. Did you really? <laughs> did what happened. Yeah, that was my dad's touch. He was like, I'm buying your teachers a present this year instead of you and your mom doing it and I was like okay and he comes home with these bottles of pepper spray for all of my teachers because he thought it would be funny I love it we just made my teachers uh scones because we're British which mm. is like scone is like a biscuit I'm trying to think like almost like a southern biscuit except not quite like a little harder and sh- more sugary yeah so please tell me for the five-year anniversary you're the new bride and your was it your uncle who my uncle yeah got her a pair of chopsticks because that's the wood anniversary that's such an amazing idea yeah i don't know if after five years it's hilarious maybe now now it is yeah i think we really just repressed that whole situation we never actually talked about it after two or three years of it happening it was almost like it never happened well i I can't see you wanting like if you were dealing with it in therapy why would you want to bring it up outside So I almost had forgotten that it happened until I was writing my life story senior year for a English research paper. All of a sudden it came back to me and I was like, holy shit, how do we never talk about this? And it's just something that we've just kind of repressed. And now I just use it as like my true truths and a lie to get to know somebody. What are the other truths? Um, That I was part of the NFL. Okay. And that stands for National Forensic League. So oh, my God. <laughs> hard nerd alert. Uh, to be fair, I was part of the SWAT team. <laughs> oh, see, there it you go. It was the super winning attitude team at my karate center. That's hilarious. Dude, we had black uniforms, and it, they said SWAT <laughs> on the back in white. I was the first ever member. I was cool. 
Did you just cheerlead on the other karate kids? No, I took karate as a black belt. But I, you were just additional on the spot. No, like they all had their white geese, like their white uh, uniforms, and ours were black. And um, I was really big into karate. I almost went to the Junior Olympics for it, but I used to participate in tournaments and first place in forums and sparring. Uh huh. I think I was a first or second degree black belt by wow. the time I finished. That is ridiculous. So my mom put me in karate. And she did it literally just so I would lose weight. My mom's like, I'm going to put him in anything that I can to get him <laughs> active. This chubby kid needs to lose a couple of pounds. And so I made it all the way to green belt. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then we moved and then school became a thing. And so I didn't go back. That's but that solid. is so cool. Yeah, I really, really loved it. I don't know why I stopped. I think we ended up moving, actually. Honestly, I think that's what it was. Can and I just never picked it up can again. Can you still break boards? No, man. Like, I think I could if I hit the right one at the right angle. But it's been a while. And something I've found out, which is probably pretty obvious to most people, but for some reason to me, it was a revelation. I didn't realize how strong I was as a child. Mm. Like, have you ever tried to hang on monkey bars again? I'm not even talking it, swing from one to one. I'm like, just hang. Oh, it's impossible. It hurts my hands. Yeah. My grip is weak. I can barely open a Coca-Cola bottle, which is <laughs> pathetic. I'd like to say in theory, as an adult, I would be stronger than my like 12-year-old yeah. self and be able to break the boards, but I don't necessarily know that that's true anymore because huh. of the, like I did CrossFit for a hot minute and I could barely hang on the bar they're like dude chin ups and i'm like i'm just gonna hang for 10 <laughs> seconds it really hurts before i drop to the ground so yeah fair enough. i wonder if it's the body mass to muscle ratio when we're born i think so and then we just kind of grow out of it because then you go to school and then things slow down and sometimes you're active with sports but yeah. sometimes you're not and then you get into an office job where maybe you're not oh, as God, active the worst and you just go from being this active child who does monkey. I mean, I used to be able to pull myself up through yeah. them. I did tricks. I would walk along them. And now I'm like, it's too high and it's too difficult. Fear is also so interesting, right? And I think fear is more debilitating than anything. Oh, absolutely. There are so many things I won't do in my life because I'm scared. And I like to chalk it up to being smart. Like, I will never skydive. <laughs> like, I'm just not going to do it because to me, it doesn't matter what the odds are. Like, that risk of losing my life is not worth it. But... It means I will never get the experience that so many people say is so incredible. Right, skydiving. right. See, that's so funny. So I used to be a scaredy cat growing up. I remember going to Chicago and to Six Flags, and I wouldn't get on any of the rides. And my uncle literally dragged me and put me on a ride, and I loved it so much that now I'm an adrenaline junkie. I will now do like almost the most ridiculous things. But the beauty is that I don't have a lot to be worried about because I don't have kids. I don't have a significant, you know what I mean? And I think all those things start adding up in your mind and they play such a big role and fear ends up playing such a big role in our lives and how we act. It really governs us. But for me, it's the odds. But every time I get on that coaster, I'm like, how many times have I ridden mm. this? What are the odds? Am I, and I suck at math. So I'm sure the odds reset every single time you yeah, get on exactly. the roller coaster ride, but a little part of me is like okay well logic and science says it could be in a thousandth time yeah. from now or a billion million trillionth time or next time but that it's gonna break it. and so i just i'm starting to get that way with planes too and i don't like it because i used to love flying the oh. thrill of taking off being in the air going somewhere new and now i'm just like even though I know it'll be okay and, you know, the ratio is better than car accidents. But even talking about this now, I feel like I'm jinxing it. And I, I hate that feeling. So I, as a thrill junkie, love doing all of that. And I also have a really dark sense of humor. So sitting on a flight with a friend who's a little nervous about flying and they come on and they say, please fasten your seatbelts and, you know, set your tray tables up. And so he's like furiously like tightening his belt. And I'm like, dude, we're on a plane. If we crash, that seatbelt ain't doing nothing for you. Oh, 
my God, you're the worst, Munir. But it's so true, right? Like, no, it could help. Maybe. maybe. Right? Like, most people don't know where I live, so I'll say this. I don't even lock my door. That little deadbolt is going to do nothing for someone who wants to come in to my home. It is just a false sense of security that we have. And that's all it is. So often we just need that. I've read about that, actually, that false sense of security and how a lot of stuff is just done for show. That's it. To make everyone feel better and feel safer when it's actually not effective. But at the same time, it does have a deterrent because even though it couldn't actually stop the crime from happening, the thieves or perpetrators think that it could. Right. So they're deterred. Right. So, you know, when you look at the statistics, you're less likely to get robbed if you live in a cul-de-sac. You're less likely to get robbed if you have signs outside of your home that say you have some sort of security and stuff like that. Oh my God, those signs stopped me as a child from selling like, it wasn't Girl Scout cookies, but something similar like for a school fundraiser, candy bars, because I saw that sign and it was my neighbors, but all of a sudden these signs appeared in their yard and I'm like, if I cross this, is it going to go off? Is someone going to go? I mean, I was a dumb child, but I wonder why the cul-de-sac thing. Because it's the hardest to get out. Oh. Right? So even with the security gates, the ones that are really effective is the ones you have to put a code in to get out. Oh. It's not about the getting in. It's about the getting out. So if they can get out without a code, then your security gate, unfortunately, means nothing. And I'm sorry, you paid so much for your home. But you look at it, and it to me, it even stems from religion. So there's a president who wrote a book that was called No Atheist in the Barracks. And it talks about how when you're in the military, you're in the barracks in a war, you will hold on to anything as something that will bring you power, right? right? So if you look at rosary beads across all religions, at the end of the day, they're just beads. But they're but representational. They're representation, right? And holding on to them, the beauty of it all this is that it will change your psychology. Well, it gives you a physical, tangible object rather than sort of the ephemeral, ethereal, whatever you want to call it, right. like up in the ethos floating around. Exactly, right. And it gives you something. So if you look at almost all religions have some tangible thing that you can hold on to, put on, right? Whether that's a cross or rosary beads or a yarn that you wrap around your hand. All religions have some sort of physical reminder that people can hold on to because we're such human physical people and we need that to kind of feel better about ourselves and to feel better about our emotions and our surroundings. That only works if you put stock in it and you you pay attention. Like back to the security gate, the reason I think they fail a lot is because people let others tailgate Mm -hmm. in after them or go in. And I remember one time. You know, my apartment complex, when I lived there, put up all these signs, don't let people tailgate in. And we lived in a part of town that, like, butted up to another part of town that wasn't really crime-free. So I wasn't letting people tailgate in, and I went really slowly and stopped this dude who was definitely trying to tailgate in. And he got really, really pissed at me. And I was still going through the parking lot slowly because people had dogs there. They'd always be in the yard, like, walking across to the dog park. And this guy, like cursed me out, like honked at me and zoomed around me. And so me being stupid, I got so pissed off. So I literally followed his car to his apartment. Wow. He was in a totally different like part of the complex, different parking deck, and he just chewed me out. And I was like, dude, I don't know why you're so mad. I'm helping you. I'm stopping an unknown person. I've never seen you before. I don't know who you are. I'm stopping you from coming into our apartment yeah. complex. And you should not be thanking me, but at least recognize that I'm trying to do the right thing. But that's why security gates don't work, because people can't use logic and think through stuff. You know, the funny thing is a really big deterrent that actually works is knowing your neighbors, because you know who's supposed to be going in and out of their house, right? And so I love animals, but I'm not allowed to have animals at my apartment complex. So I will often, like, co-parent and co-uncle with friends of mine, and, Mm -hmm. like, I'll find dogs on the street and, like, take them in, and then I'll get them adopted. 
And so I'll dog sit a lot and I'll be going into friends' homes and there are times where people will see me around and they will say nothing. And I'm like, I'm a stranger as far as this person is concerned. Right. Walking into their neighbor's home and they don't bother to say anything. But everyone's so like, it's none of my business. Because I can see that mentality too. Like if you're coming over to my place and you walk in and one of my neighbors stops you and like you tell me about it later, I'd be like, how dare you insult my guest and my friend (laughs) like that? Like he is welcome. Right. Right. You don't know me. You don't know my life. Stay out of my business. Yeah. But then if you're not invited, I'd be like, oh, my God, you're a hero. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. I'm so right. glad you're looking out your blinds at my house and yeah, exactly. sticking and it's your that, nose where it yeah. don't belong. Yeah, it's interesting our conversations about fear because I know we're going to have Dr. Carter on later who's written the book on fear and adrenaline seeking. So it'll be interesting to ask him some of these questions that I we have as well. I cannot wait to talk to yeah. him. I'm so fascinated because you're right. Fear really does govern a lot of our lives. And it's hard to overcome because of the what ifs. Right. God, what was it? I was reading or hearing something. It might have been the Crime Junkie podcast, honestly, but like they say that when you feel uneasy or like something's wrong, it's your body picking up subconscious signals Mm -hmm. that like you're headed for disaster and that's why you start to feel fear. So if you're scared and you don't know why, your body is subconsciously picking up on bad vibes and not just vibes, but signals from the environment that something is wrong. Yeah. But the thing with fear is overcoming it. It's like not the same as being brave. It's just, you know, the consequences are really bad if it goes wrong. Right, like it's right. a big risk and a big gamble. And that's why I find conquering fear so difficult sometimes. It also makes an impact on how we make decisions. Right. So, you know, I was telling you recently about my trip to Haiti. Yeah. And so seeing your sister there and seeing my friend, Dr. Carlton Mackey, who I took there, how we made decisions and how we were willing to move forward. So Carlton has a significant other, has a kid. I have just parents, you know, who are important to me, but I don't have like someone who's super reliant on me, right? Right. And then we've got your sister who's just wild. Yeah, right? she is a free spirit. Yeah, free spirit. And so looking at the three of us, and I think the granular nature of fear and how it decreases from Carlton to me to your sister and how we make decisions and how we process things is so interesting based on that subconscious aspect of our mind. Because I think all three of us are similar level of intelligence, similar level of like logic, but because we have the subconscious about it, it was so different of how we made our decisions. And it's also the environment you're used to. Like my sister has lived overseas, like in Africa, she fought Ebola, like she's seen some gruesome stuff. I think she's used to that environment. So Mm -hmm. now she knows the calculated risks better, where if you are used to living in America, where things are a little more padded and cushy and safe, you don't know what the risks are when you go to another country. Like, is it safe? How safe is it? What's the margin of error here? I would be interested to see how that plays into it, too. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for joining us for our first episode. This is kind of the format we'll be rolling with. We always want to tell you great stories in the beginning and then have kind of cool tangential discussion after. We'll see you next week with a new episode. At the age of just 10, Derek Kayongo was rounded up by a military firing squad with his family and forced to watch as his neighbors were lined up and killed one by one, all for a crime they didn't commit. He escaped, became a refugee, and now he's a CEO. He's going to tell us his life story and the crazy twist we never saw coming in the next episode of Real Tall Tales. If you have an awesome story that you want to tell that is ridiculous, that no one believes, we would love to hear it. So just hit us up on social media. I'm at Cassandra Young. I'm at Munir McJohnny. That's M-U-N-I-R-M-E-G-H-J-A-N-I. And check out the show's socials. That's at The Tall Tales Pod on Twitter and at Real Tall Tales Pod on Instagram for more on our guests. But in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. You're listening to Real Tall Tales.